Chapter Three of The Tiger of Mysore by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. The Tiger of Mysore by G. A. Henty. Chapter Three. The Raja. Now, mother, let us talk over our plans, Dick said, as after dinner they seated themselves in two chairs in the veranda, at some distance from the other guests at the hotel. How are we going to begin? In the first place, Dick, we shall to-morrow send out a messenger to Tripatli to tell my brother of our arrival there. How far is it, mother? Oh, it's about a hundred and twenty miles in a straight line, I think, but a good bit farther than that by the way we shall go. How shall we travel, mother? I will make some inquiries to-morrow, but I think that the pleasantest way will be to drive from here to Kanjaram. I think that that's about forty miles. There we can take a native boat and go up the river Palar, past Ercot and Valor, to Vaniambadi. From there it's only about fifteen miles to Tripatli. I shall tell my brother the way I propose going. Of course, if he thinks any other way will be better, then we shall go by that. Are we going to travel as we are, mother, or in native dress? That is a point I have been thinking over, Dick. I will wait and ask my brother which he thinks will be best. When out there I always dressed as a native, and never put on English clothes except at Madras. I used to come down here two or three times every year with my mother, and generally stayed for a fortnight or three weeks. During that time we always dressed in English fashion, as by so doing we could live at the hotel and take our meals at public tables without exciting comment. My mother knew several families here, and liked getting back to English ways occasionally. Of course, I shall dress in Indian fashion while I stay at my brother's, so it's only the question of how we shall journey there, and I think I should prefer going as we are. We shall excite no special observation travelling as English, as it will only be supposed that we are on our way to pay a visit to some of our officers at Arcot. At Kanjavaram, which is a large place, there is sure to be a hotel of some sort or other, for it's on the main road from Madras south. On the way up by water we shall, of course, sleep on board, and we shall go direct from the boat to Tripatli. However, we need not decide until we get an answer to my letter, for it will take a very short time to get the necessary dresses for us both. I think it most likely that my brother will send down one of his officers to meet us, or possibly may come down himself. You heard what they are all talking about at dinner, Dick? Yes, mother, it was something about Tippoo attacking the Rajah of Travancore. But I didn't pay much attention to it. I was looking at the servants and their curious dresses. It's very important, Dick, and will probably change all our plans. Travancore is in alliance with us, and everyone thinks that Tippoo's attack on it will end in our being engaged in war with him. I was talking to the officer who sat next to me, and he told me that if there had been a capable man at the head of government here, War would have been declared as soon as the Sultan moved against Travancore. Now that General Meadows had been appointed Governor and Commander-in-Chief, there is no doubt, he said, that an army would move against Tipu in a very short time, that it was already being collected, and that a force was marching down here from Bengal. So you see, my boy, if this war really breaks out, the English may march to Serengapatam and compel Tipu to give up all the captives he has in his hands. Oh, that would be splendid, mother! At any rate, Dick, as long as there is a hope of your father being rescued in that way, our plans must be put aside. Well, mother, that will be better in some respects, for, of course, if father is not rescued by our army, I can try afterwards as we arranged. It would be an advantage in one way, as 
I should then be quite accustomed to the country, and more fit to make my way about. A week later an old officer arrived from Tepatli. Ah, Rajbulub, Mrs. Holland explained as he came up with her deep salaam. I am indeed glad to see you again. I knew you were alive, for my brother mentioned you when he wrote last year. Rajbulub was evidently greatly pleased at the recognition. I think I should know you, lady, he said, but eighteen years makes more changes in the young than in the old. Truly I am glad to see you again. There was great joy among us who knew you as a child when the Rajah told us that you were here. He has sent me on to say that he will arrive to-morrow. I am to see to his apartments and to have all in readiness. He intends to stay here some days before returning to Tripatli. Will he come to this hotel? No, lady. He will take the house he always has when he is here. It is kept for the use of our princes when they come to Madras. He bade me say that he hopes you will remain here, for that none of the rooms could be got ready at such a short notice. He has not written, for he hates writing, which is a thing that he has small occasion for. I was to tell you that his heart rejoiced at the thought of seeing you again, and that his love for you is as warm as it was when you were a boy and girl together. This is my son, Rajbulub. He has often heard me speak of you. Yes, indeed, Dick said warmly. I heard how you saved her from being bitten by a cobra when she was a little girl. <laughs> ah, the young lord speaks our tongue, Rajbulub said with great pleasure. We wondered whether you would have taught it to him. If it had not been that you always wrote to my lord in our language, we should have thought that you yourself would surely have forgotten it after dwelling so long among the white sahibs. No, we always speak it when together, Rajpulub. I thought that he might some day come out here and that he would find it very useful. And I, too, having been looking forward to returning for a time to the home where I was born. There were many questions to ask about her brother, his wife, and two sons. They were younger than Dick, for Mrs. Holland was three years senior to the Rajah. At last she said, I will not detain you longer, Rajbulub. I know that you will have a great deal to do to get ready for my brother's coming. At what time will he arrive? He hopes to be here by ten in the morning before the heat of the day sets in. I shall, of course, be there to meet him. So he hoped, lady. He said that he would have come straight here first, but he thought it would be more pleasant for you to meet him in privacy. Assuredly it would, she agreed. I will bring a carriage for you here at nine o'clock and take you and my young lord to the Rajah's house. At the appointed time a handsome carriage and pair drove up to the door of the hotel, and in ten minutes Mrs. Holland and Dick alighted in the courtyard of a large house. Four native servants were at the door, and the old officer led the way to a spacious room. This was carpeted with handsome rugs. Soft cushions were piled on the divan, running round the room, the divan itself being covered with velvet and silk rugs. Looking-glasses were ranged upon the walls. A handsome chandelier hung from the roof. Draperies of gauze, lightly embroidered with gold, hung across the windows. Why, Rajbulub, you have done wonders! That is, if the house was unfurnished yesterday. It was simple, the Hindu said. My lord, your brother, like other rajahs who use the house when they come down here, has a room upstairs in which are kept locked up everything required for furnishing the rooms he uses. Four of his servants came down here with me. We had but to call in sweepers to clear the house from dust and wash down the marble floors, and then everything was put into place. The cook, who also came down, has hired assistants, and all will be ready for my lord when he arrives. In half an hour one of the servants ran in and announced that the Rajah was in the courtyard. There was a great trampling of hoofs, and a moment later he ascended the stairs, and was met by his sister and Dick at the door of the room. 
Mrs. Holland had attired herself handsomely, not so much for the sake of her brother, but that, as his sister, those with him would expect to see in her an English lady of position, and Dick thought that he had never seen her looking so well as when, in a dress of rich brocade, with a flush of pleasure and expectation on her cheeks, she advanced to the door. She was still but a little over thirty-three years old, and although the long years of anxiety and sorrow had left their traces on her face, the rest and quiet of the sea voyage had done much to restore the fullness of her cheeks and to soften the outline of her figure. The Rajah, a young and handsome-looking man of thirty, ascended the stairs with an eagerness and speed that were somewhat at variance with Dick's preconceived ideas of the stateliness of an eastern prince. "'My sister Margaret!' he exclaimed in English and embraced her with a warmth that showed that his affection for her was unimpaired by the years that had passed since he had last seen her. Then he stood with his hands on her shoulders, looking earnestly at her. "'I know you again,' he said. "'You are changed, but I can recall your face well. You are welcome, Margaret, most welcome.' "'And this is my nephew,' he went on, turning to Dick and holding out both his hands to him. "'You are taller than I expected, well nigh as tall as I am.' You are like your mother, and my mother, and you are bold and active and strong, she writes me. My boys are longing to see you, and you will be most welcome at Tripatli. I have almost forgotten my English, Margaret, and indeed he spoke with some difficulty, evidently choosing his words. I should quite have forgotten it had not I often had occasion to speak it with English officers. I see by your letters that you have not forgotten our tongue. Not in the least, Mortise. I have for years spoken nothing else with Dick, and he speaks it as well as I do. That is good, the Rajah replied in his own tongue, and in a tone of relief. I was wondering how he would get on with us. Now let us sit down. We have so much to tell each other, and moreover, I am ravenous for breakfast, as I have ridden forty miles since sunrise. Breakfast was speedily served, the Rajah eating in English fashion. I cling to some of our mother's ways, you see, Margaret. As I have grown older, I have become more English than I was. Naturally, as a boy of thirteen, as I was when you last saw me, I listened to the talk of those around me, and was guided by their opinions a good deal. Among them there was a feeling of regret that our father had married an Englishwoman, and I, of course, was ever trying my hardest to show that, in riding or the chase or in exercises of any kind, I was as worthy to be the son of an Indian Rajah as if I had no white blood in my veins. As I grew up I became wiser. I saw how great the English were, how steadily they extended their dominions, and how vastly better off were our people under their sway than they were in the days when every Rajah made war against his neighbor, and the land never had rest. Then I grew proud of my English blood, and although I am to my people Rajah of Tripatli, a native prince and lord of their destinies, keeping up the same state as my father and ruling them in native fashion, in my inner house I have adopted many English ways. My wife has no rival in the Zenana. I encourage her to go about as our mother did, to look after the affairs of the house, to sit at table with me, and to be my companion, and not a mere plaything. I am sure, Margaret, your stay with us will do her much good, and she will learn a great deal from you. You have heard no news since you last wrote, Mortis? A slight cloud passed across the Rajah's animated face. None, Margaret. We have little news from beyond the mountains. Tippoo hates us, who are the friends of the English, as much as he hates the English themselves, so there is little communication between Mysore and the possessions of the Nabob of Arcot. We will talk later on of the plans you wrote of in your last letter to me. 
"'You do not think they are hopeless, Mortis?' Mrs. Holland asked anxiously. "'I would not say that they are hopeless,' he said gently, "'although it seems to me that, after all these years, the chances are slight indeed that your husband can be alive, and the peril and danger of the enterprise that, so far as I understood you, you intend your son to undertake would be terrible indeed. We see that, Mortis. Dick and I have talked it over a thousand times. But so long as there is but a shadow of a chance of his finding his father, he is ready to undertake the search. He is a boy in years, but he has been trained for the undertaking, and will, when the trial comes, bear himself as well as a man. Well, Margaret, I shall have plenty of opportunities for forming my own judgment, because, of course, he will stay with us a long time before he starts on the quest, and it will be better to say no more of this now. Now, tell me about London. Is it so much a greater city than Madras? Mrs. Holland sighed. She saw by his manner that he was wholly opposed to her plan, and although she was quite prepared for opposition, she could not help feeling disappointed. However, she perceived that, as he said, it would be better to drop the subject for a time, and she accordingly put it aside and answered his questions. Madras is large, that is, it spreads over a wide extent, but if it were packed with houses as closely as they could stand, it would not approach London in the number of its population. How is it that the English do not send more troops out here, Margaret? Because they can raise troops here, and English soldiers cannot stand the heat as well as those born to it. Moreover, you must remember that at present England is at war, not only with France and half Europe, but also with America. She is also obliged to keep an army in Ireland, which is greatly disaffected. With all this on her hands, she cannot send a large army so far across the seas, especially when her force here is sufficient, for all that can be required of it. That is true, he said. It is wonderful what they have done out here with such a small force. But they will have harder work before they conquer all India, as I believe they will do, than they have yet encountered. In spite of Tippoo's vauntings, they will have Mysore before many years are over. The Sultan seems to have forgotten the lesson they taught him six or seven years back. But the next time will be the last, and Tippoo, tiger as he is, will meet the fate he seems bent on provoking. But beyond Mysore lies the Maratha country, and the Marathas alone can put thirty thousand horsemen into the field. They are not like the people of Bengal, who have ever fallen with scarce an attempt at resistance under the yoke of one tyrant after another. The Marathas are a nation of warriors. They are plunderers, if you will, but they are brave and fearless soldiers, and might, had they been united, have had all India under their feet before the coming of the English. That chance has slipped from them, but when we, I say we, you see, Margaret, meet them, it will be a desperate struggle indeed. We shall thrash them, uncle, Dick broke in. You will see that we shall beat them thoroughly. The Rajah smiled at Dick's impetuosity. So you think English soldiers cannot be beaten, eh? Well, uncle, somehow they never do get beaten. I, I don't know how it is. I suppose that it's just obstinacy. Look how we thrashed the French here, and, and they were just as well drilled as our soldiers, and there were twice as many of them. The Rajah nodded. Our secret of our success, Dick, is that the English get on better with the natives here than the French do. I don't know why, except what I have heard from people who went through the war. They say that the French always seem to look down on the natives and treat even powerful allies with a sort of haughtiness that irritated them and made them ready to change sides at the first opportunity, while the British treated them pleasantly so that there was a real friendship between them. 
Dick, finding that the conversation now turned to the time when his mother and uncle were girl and boy together, left them and went downstairs. He found some twenty horses ranged in the courtyard, while their riders were sitting in the shade, several of them being engaged in cooking. These were the escort who had ridden with the Rajah from Tripatli, for no Indian prince would think of making a journey unless accompanied by a numerous retinue. Scarcely had he entered the yard than Raj Bulab came up, with the officer in command of the escort, a fine-looking specimen of a Hindu soldier. He salaamed as Raj Bulab presented him to Dick. The lad addressed him at once in his own tongue, and they were soon talking freely together. The officer was surprised at finding that his lord's nephew from beyond the sea was able to speak the language like a native. First Dick asked the nature of the country and the places at which they would halt on their way. Then he inquired what force the Rajah could put into the field, and was somewhat disappointed to hear that he kept up but a hundred horsemen, including those who served as an escort. "'You see, Sahib, there is no occasion for soldiers. Now that the whites are the masters, they do the fighting for us. When the Rajah's father was a young man, he could put two thousand men under arms, and he joined at the siege of Trichinopoly with twelve hundred. But now there is no longer need for an army, there is no one to fight.' Some of the young men grumble, but the old ones rejoice at the change. Formerly they had to go to the plough with their spears and their swords beside them, because they never knew when marauders from the hills might sweep down. Besides, when there was war, they might be called away for weeks while the crops were wasting upon the ground. As to the younger men who grumble, I say to them, If you are tired of a peaceful life, go and enlist in a company's regiment. And every year some of them do so. In other ways the change is good. Now that the Rajah has no longer to keep up an army, he is not obliged to squeeze the cultivators. Therefore they pay but a light rent for their lands, and the Rajah is far better off than his father was, so that on all sides there is content and prosperity. But even now the fear of Mysore has not quite died out. My position, Margaret, the Rajah said after Dick had left the room, is a very precarious one. When Hyder Ali marched down here eight years ago, he swept the whole country from the foot of the hills to the sea-coast. My father would have been glad to stand neutral, but was, of course, bound to go with the English, as the Nabob of Arcot, his nominal sovereign, went with them. His sympathies were, of course, with your people, but most of the chiefs were at heart in favor of Hyder. It was not that they loved him, or preferred the rule of Mysore to that of Madras, but at that time Madras was governed by imbeciles. Its council was composed entirely of timid and irresolute men. It was clear to all that before any force capable of withstanding him could be put in the field, the whole country, beyond reach of the guns of the forts of Madras, would be at the mercy of Hyder. What that mercy was had been shown elsewhere. Whole populations had been either massacred or carried off as slaves. Therefore, when the storm was clearly about to burst, almost all of them sent secret messages to Hyder to assure him that their sympathies were with him, and that they would gladly hail him as ruler of the Carnatic. My father was in no way inclined to take such a step. His marriage with an Englishwoman, the white blood in my veins, and his long-known partiality for the English, would have marked him for certain destruction. And as soon as he received news that Hyder's troops were in movement, he rode with me to Madras. At that time his force was comparatively large, and he took three hundred men down with us. He had allowed all who preferred it to remain behind, and some four hundred stayed to look after their families. Most of the population took to the hills, and as Hyder's force were too much occupied to spend time in scouring the ghats in search of fugitives, 
when there was so much loot and so many captives ready to their hands on the plains. The fugitives, for the most part, remained there in safety. The palace was burnt, the town sacked, and partly destroyed, and some fifteen hundred of our people who had remained in their homes killed or carried off. My father did some service with our horse, and I fought by his side. We were with Colonel Bailey's force when it was destroyed, after for two days resisting the whole of Hyder Ali's army. Being mounted, we escaped and reached Madras in safety, after losing half our number, but all that I can tell you about some other day. When peace was made and Hyder retired, we returned home, rebuilt the palace, and restored the town. But if Tipu follows his father's example, and sweeps down from the hills, there will be nothing for it but to fly again. Tipu commanded one of the divisions of Hyder's army last time, and showed much skill and energy, and has, since he came to the throne, been a scourge to his neighbors in the north. So far as I can see, Madras will be found as unprepared as it was last time, and although the chiefs of Velour, Arcot, Kanjavaram, and other places may be better disposed toward the English than they were before, for the Karnatek had a terrible lesson last time, they will not dare to lift a finger against him until they see a large British force assembled. So you see, sister, our position will be a very precarious one at Tripatli, and it's likely that at any time we may be obliged to seek refuge here. The trouble may come soon, or it may not come for a year, but sooner or later I regard it as certain that Tipu will strive to obtain what his father failed to gain, the mastership of the Carnatic. Indeed, he makes no secret of his intention to become lord of the whole of southern India. The Nizam, his neighbor in the north, fears his power, and could offer but a feeble resistance, were Tipu once master of the south and west coast. The Marathis can always be bought over, especially if there is a prospect of plunder. He relies, too, upon aid from France, for although the French, since the capture of Pondicherry, have themselves lost all chance of obtaining India, they would gladly aid in any enterprise that would bring about the fall of English predominance here. There are two considerable bodies of French troops in the pay of the Nizam, and these would, at any rate, force their master to remain neutral in a struggle between the English and Tipu. However, it will be quite unnecessary that you should resume our garb, or that Dick should dress in the same fashion. Did I intend to remain at Tripatli, I should not wish to draw the attention of my neighbors to the fact that I had English relations resident with me. Of course, everyone knows that I am half English myself, but that is an old story now. They would, however, be reminded of it, and Tipu would hear of it, and would use it as a pretext for attacking and plundering us. But as I have decided to come down here, there is no reason why you should not dress in European fashion. We would remain here, brother, Mrs. Holland said rather than bring danger upon you. Dick could learn the ways of the country here as well as with you, and could start on his search without going to Tripatli. Not at all, Margaret. Whether you are with me or not, I shall have to leave Tripatli when Tipu advances, and your presence will not in any way affect my plans. My wife and sons must travel with me, and one woman and boy more or less will make no difference. At present this scheme of yours seems to me to border on madness, but we need not discuss that now. I shall at any rate be very glad to have you both with me. The English side of me has been altogether in the background since you went away, and though I keep up many of the customs our mother introduced, I have almost forgotten the tongue, though I force myself to speak it sometimes with my boys, as I am sure that in the long run the English will become the sole masters of southern India, and it will be a great advantage to them to speak the language. However, I have many other things to see about and the companionship of Dick will benefit them greatly. You know what it always is out here. 
the sons of a rajah are spoilt early by everyone giving way to them and their being allowed to do just as they like naturally they get into habits of indolence and self-indulgence and never has occasion to exert themselves or to obtain the strength and activity that make our mother's countrymen irresistible in battle they have been taught to shoot and to ride but they know little else and i am sure it will do them an immense deal of good to have dick with them for a time if nothing comes of this search for your husband i hope you will take up your residence permanently at tripatli you have nothing to go back to england for and dick with his knowledge of both languages should be able to find good employment in the company's service thank you greatly brother if as you say my quest should come to nothing i would gladly settle down in my old home dick's inclinations at present turn to the sea but I have no doubt that what you say is true, and that there may be far more advantageous openings for him out here. However, that is a matter for us to talk about in the future. The Rajah stayed four days at Madras. Every morning the carriage came at nine o'clock to fetch Mrs. Holland, who spent several hours with her brother, and was then driven back to the hotel, while Dick wandered about with Raj Bulab through the native town asking questions innumerable observing closely the different costumes and turbans, and learning to know at once the district, trade, or caste from the color or fashion of the turban, and, of course, from other little signs as well. The shops were an endless source of amusement to him, and he somewhat surprised his companion by his desire to learn the names of all the little articles and trinkets, even of the various kinds of grain. Dick, in fact, was continuing his preparations for his work. He knew that ignorance of any trifling detail, which would as a matter of course be known to every native, would excite more surprise and suspicion than would be caused by a serious blunder in other matters, and he wrote down in a notebook every scrap of information he obtained, so as to learn it by heart at his leisure. Raj Bulab was much surprised at the lad's interest in all these little matters, which, as it seemed to him, were not worth a thought on the part of his lord's nephew. "'You will never have to buy these things, Sahib,' he said. Why should you trouble about them? I am going to be over here some time, Rajbulub, and it's just as well to learn as much as one can. If I were to stroll into the market at Tripatli and had a fancy to buy any trifle, the country people would laugh in my face were I ignorant of its name. His companion shook his head. They would not expect any white sahib to know such things, he said. If he wants to buy anything, the white sahib points to it and asks, How much? Then, whether it is a brass iota, or a silver trinket, or a file, or a bunch of fruit, the native says a price four times as much as he would ask anyone else. Then the sahib offers him half, and after protesting many times that the sum is impossible, the dealer accepts it, and both parties are well satisfied. If you have seen anything that you want to buy, sahib, tell me, and I will go and get it for you. Then you will not be cheated. The start for Tripatli was made at daybreak. Dick and his mother drove in an open carriage that had been hired for the journey. The Rajah rode beside it, or cantered on ahead. His escort followed the vehicle. The luggage had been sent off two days before by cart. The country as far as Arcot was flat, but everything was interesting to Dick, and when they arrived at the city, where they were to stop for the night at the house the Rajah had occupied on his way down, he sallied out, as soon as their meal was over, to inspect the fort and walls. He had, during his outward voyage, eagerly studied the history of Clive's military exploits, and the campaigns by which that portion of India had been wrested from the French, and he was eager to visit the fort, whose memorable defence by Clive had first turned the scale in favour of the British. These had previously been regarded by the natives as a far less warlike people than the French, who were expected to drive them in a very short time out of the country. 
Rajbullub was able to point out to him every spot associated with the stirring events of that time. "'Tis forty-six years back, and I was but a boy of twelve, but six years later I was here, for our Rajah was on the side of the English, although Tripatli was, and is now, under the Nabob of Arcot. But my lord had many causes of complaint against him, and when he declared for the French, our lord, who was not then a Rajah, although chief of a considerable district, threw in his lot with the English, and when they triumphed was appointed Rajah by them, and Tripatli was made almost wholly independent of the Nabob of Arcot. At one time a force of our men was here, with four companies of white troops, when it was thought that Duplay was likely to march against us, and I was with that force, and so learned all about the fighting here. The next day the party arrived late in the evening at Tripatli. A large number of men with torches received them in front of the palace, and on entering Mrs. Holland was warmly received by the Rajah's wife, who carried her off at once to her apartments, which she did not leave afterwards, as she was greatly fatigued by the two long days of travel. Dick, on the contrary, although he had dozed in the carriage for the last two or three hours of the journey, woke up thoroughly as they neared Tripatli. As soon as they entered the house, the Rajah called his two sons, handsome, dark-faced lads of twelve and thirteen. "'This is your cousin, boys,' he said. "'You must look after him and see that he has everything he wants, and make his stay as pleasant as you can.' Although a little awed by the to them tall figure, they evinced neither shyness nor awkwardness, but advancing to Dick, held out their hands one after the other with grave courtesy. Their faces both brightened, as he said in their own language, "'I hope we shall be great friends, cousin. I am older and bigger than you are, but everything is new and strange to me, and I shall have to depend upon you to teach me everything.' "'We did not think that you would be able to talk to us,' the elder, whose name was Doastasud, said, smiling. "'We have been wondering how we should make you understand. Many of the white officers who come here sometimes speak our language, but none of them, as well as you do. You see, they only learn it after they come out here, while well, I learnt it from my mother, who has talked to me in it since I was quite a little boy, so it comes as naturally to me as to you. In a few minutes supper was announced, the two boys sat down with their father and Dick, and the meal was served in English fashion. Dick had already become accustomed to the white-robed servants at the hotel at Madras, and everything seemed to him pleasant and very homelike. "'Tomorrow, Dick,' his uncle said, "'you must have your first lesson in riding.' The two boys looked up in surprise. They had been accustomed to horses from their earliest remembrance, and it seemed to them incredible that their tall cousin should require to be taught. Dick smiled at their look of astonishment. "'It is not with us in England as it is here,' he said. "'Boys who live in the country learn to ride, but in London, which is a very great town, with nothing but houses for miles and miles everywhere, few people keep horses to ride.' The streets are so crowded with vehicles of all sorts, and with people on foot, that it's no pleasure to ride in them, and everyone who can afford it goes about in a carriage. Those who cannot go in hired vehicles are on foot. You'd hardly see a person on horseback once in a week. I do not like walking, Doast said gravely. Well, you see, you have no occasion to walk, as you always have your horses. Besides, the weather here is very hot, but in England it's colder, and walking is a pleasure. I've walked over twenty miles a day many times, not because I had to do it, but as a day's pleasure with a friend. Can you shoot, cousin? No, Dick laughed. There's nothing to shoot at. There are no wild beasts in England and no game birds anywhere near London. Dick saw at once that he had descended many steps in his cousin's estimation. Then what can you find to do? the younger boy asked. Oh, there's plenty to do, Dick said. In the first place, there's school. That takes the best part of the day. Then there are all sorts of games. 
Then I used to take lessons in sword exercise, and did all sorts of things to improve my muscles and to make me strong. Then on holidays three or four of us would go for a long walk, and sometimes we went out on the river in a boat, and every morning early we used to go for a swim. Oh, I can tell you there was plenty to do, and I was busy from morning till night. But I want very much to learn to shoot, both with gun and pistol, as well as to ride. We have got English guns and pistols, Dost said. We will lend them to you. We have a place where we practice. Our father says everyone ought to be able to shoot. Don't you, father? The Rajah nodded. Everyone out here ought to, Dost, because, you see, every man here may be called upon to fight. And everyone carries arms. But it's different in England. Nobody fights there, except those who go into the army. And nobody carries weapons. What? No swords, pistols, and daggers, father? Dost explained in surprise for to him it seemed that arms were as necessary a part of attire as a turban, and much more necessary than shoes. But when people are attacked by marauders, or two chiefs quarrel with each other, what can they do if they have no arms? There are no marauders and no chiefs, Dick laughed. In the old times, hundreds of years ago, there were nobles who could call out all their tenants and retainers to fight their battles, and in those days people carried swords, as they do here. There are nobles still, but they have no longer any power to call out anyone, and if they quarrel they have to go before a court for the matter to be decided, just as everyone else does. This seemed to Doast a very unsatisfactory state of things, and he looked to his father for an explanation. It is as your cousin says, Doast. You have been down with me to Madras, and you have seen that except the officers in the army, none of the Europeans carry arms. It's the same in England. England is a great island, and as they have many ships of war, no enemy can land there. There is one king over the whole country, and there are written laws by which everyone, high and low alike, are governed. So you see, no one has to carry arms. All disputes are settled by the law, and there is peace everywhere. For as nothing would be settled by fighting, and the law would punish anyone, however much in the right he might be, who fought, there is no occasion at all for weapons. It is a good plan, for, you see, no one, however rich, can tyrannize over others, and were the greatest noble to kill the poorest peasant, the law would hang him just the same as it would hang a peasant who killed a lord. And now, boys, you had better be off to bed. Your cousin has had a long day of it, and I have no doubt he will be glad to do so. Tomorrow we will begin to teach him to ride and to shoot, and I have no doubt that he will be ready in return to teach you a great deal about his country. The boys got up, but Dost paused to ask his father one last question. But how is it, father, if the English never carry weapons and never fight, that they are such brave soldiers? For have they not conquered all our princes and rajas, and have even beaten Tipu Sahib, and made him give them much of his country? The answer would be a great deal too long to be given to-night, Dost. You had better ask your cousin about it in the morning. End of chapter 3. Recording by Mike Harris.